Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. We live in a time where technology is advancing faster than our ability to regulate and culturally adapt to it. And sometimes that results in truly terrifying realities. Our guest this week is Kashmir Hill. Kashmir is a tech reporter at the New York Times. She digs into the intersection of facial recognition, artificial intelligence, unfettered capitalism, and privacy rights in her new book, Your Face Belongs to Us, a secretive startup's quest to end privacy as we know it. When you are out grocery shopping, you may not realize what is watching you. Some supermarkets are using facial recognition technology to catch thieves. The Toronto Police Service has made a disturbing admission. Officers use secret facial recognition technology from Clearview AI to dig up sensitive personal information based on nothing more than photos. You know, there's been a lot of talk about um, the, the start of Clearview, you know, in 2020. And Luke O'Brien of uh, Huffington Post had reported that some of your earliest sort of uh, co-workers were, you know, had these deep long-standing ties to far-right extremists. I'm just going to say it right here. Clearview AI is a privacy dumpster fire, in my opinion. This company was found to be providing its tool for facial recognition to law enforcement agencies and governments, including the FBI and the DHS. I'm Kashmir Hill. I'm a technology reporter at the New York Times. I'm the author of a new book called Your Face Belongs to Us. And I'm fighting for a future where we can still be anonymous. Sorry, not sorry. Kashmir, welcome to Sorry Not Sorry. Let's just start with you telling our listeners a bit about who you are and the work that you do. Sure. So I am a journalist. I've been writing about technology with a focus on privacy for over a decade now. I write about kind of the harms of data collection and data getting used in unexpected ways. And I've written about all kinds of things, cryptocurrency, facial recognition technology is the subject of the book. But yeah, just weird data collection, especially when there's a victim of it. 
I really want to get to your face belongs to us. And I do think, though, that it might be helpful to start with a little background, maybe just a little background on facial recognition and just the general tech landscape that surrounds it, because I think we shouldn't assume that my listeners understand how all this works. So can you tell us how facial recognition technology came into being and how it's evolving and where it's going? Yeah, so engineers and scientists have been trying to get computers to be able to recognize the human face for decades now. Going back to before Silicon Valley was called Silicon Valley, the CIA was funding very early engineers to try to unlock the secrets of the human face. And they tried for many decades without much success. So what year is this? Just so we understand how either quickly the tech is shifting or how long it's taken. Kind of like the early 1960s were the first attempts to do this with computers that were huge, you know, the size of refrigerators at the time. And it really didn't work that well. There were breakthroughs over time. You know, they would make it so a computer could recognize eight people in the 1970s. And in the early 1990s, it was 16 people. And it was kind of slowly growing leaps and bounds. And it wasn't until this last decade with machine learning and neural net technology just this really advanced kind of programs that are able to take a lot of data, analyze it, and recognize patterns. And so you had this powerful software, powerful computers, and then all these photos of us on the internet, all these photos that we've tagged so that you can see your face hundreds of times, for example, on a platform like Facebook. And so they're able to get a computer to crunch all these photos of you, and it gets very good at recognizing a human face, even just recognizing you. I can think of some examples of how that technology is used in our day-to-day life, right? If you open up your photo album on an iPhone, it'll say, is this person? And it starts just this facial recognition thread of all the photos you might have of your dad or your child or whatever. What are the other ways that technology is being used in our day-to-day life? So a lot of people first started seeing facial recognition technology in their lives in kind of 2010, 2011. Technology companies like Google and Facebook would release these tools that would suggest the name of your friends when you uploaded photos. You know, you'd upload photos from a wedding and it would say, oh, is this your friend Bob? Is this your friend Anne? Do you want us to tag it? And it didn't really work that well back then. And I don't think a lot of people realized it, but we were helping to train the software. We were saying, yes, that is Bob. Yes, that is Anne. And let me tag all these other people in the photo. So we helped train the computers unwittingly. The way that most people experience now is, yeah, you use facial recognition technology to open your iPhone. A lot of people traveling now, when they go to the airport, some airlines are having people check in with their face. When you cross a border, sometimes you're putting your passport on a scanner, looking into a camera. And it's matching you to your passport because there's a biometric chip in your passport with a face print in it. And so it's recognizing that you're you. And so there's all these times that we're kind of using facial recognition technology knowingly to access services as a means of convenience. It's also starting to get to be used in the background. Increasingly, we are in databases that we don't know about. And All of the ring cameras probably contribute to this, right? I mean, it feels like there are cameras everywhere. And I feel like there are so many different ways to grab images and your face. Yeah, it's like there are some surveillance cameras that you can buy at home, like the Nest Cam, 
where you can tell it, I want you to recognize familiar faces. Tell me when a certain person is at the door. Tell me when the delivery person comes by. So it really is starting to creep into our day-to-day life and in, in a really significant way. We're a social media generation, right? Like we all use it. And I'm certainly guilty of using those filters where you're like, okay, turn me into Harry Potter. And they take our image and they put it through some sort of AI filter that makes us into Harry Potter characters. So are we actually just by doing that, by using those filters, are we training AI to recognize our faces? Possibly. I mean, I hate to privacy shame people, and I know that those filters are very fun, but it is possible that they are using the data they collect for other purposes. And again, I think this is where we need laws to protect us, that you shouldn't be able to collect data for one purpose and then use it for another. But yeah, I tend to worry when you don't know anything about the company that's offering the filter. If it's a company you've never heard of before, you don't know where it's based, They could repurpose it. At the same time, it's pretty easy to get a photo of your face on the internet. You may not be risking that much using a Harry Potter filter or whatever. I think the concern obviously would be like, are there flaws in this technology where it has misidentified any individuals or categories of people? I think there's a lot of concerns around facial recognition technology. One is these companies that are starting to create huge databases like Clearview AI scraped 30 billion faces from the internet to create this huge database where you can take a photo of somebody, upload it to their database, and find out who that person is because it pulls up all these photos of them on the internet. And so it makes us all kind of start to have famous faces where we're easily recognizable. And Clearview AI is limiting its tool to the police. But now there are other imitators that have public face search engines on the internet that anyone can use with a subscription. Have you seen every picture of yourself? In the age of social media, more of us are online than ever before. We post pictures of ourselves and pictures of each other all the time. But what about the pictures you didn't post? The ones that aren't on your social media profiles, the ones that you don't remember taking. Have you seen them? Clearview AI has, and they're using these photos to help their clients learn everything about you. And so it means that somebody can just take a photo of you out in public while you're having a sensitive conversation at dinner or you're buying something sensitive at the pharmacy and they can potentially find out who you are. And that, I think, is very alarming. Yeah, it's so scary. And I want to reiterate and be absolutely clear that what you just said was that Clearview AI had scraped, meaning collected from visible data on social media networks, not just photos, but other information about basically all users of social media. Is that right? Yeah, they've scraped from many places on the public internet, employment sites, education sites, Flickr, Facebook, Instagram, Venmo, LinkedIn. And so the way that Clearview AI works is, you know, you can upload a photo from a surveillance camera or a photo you've taken that you have of a suspect and you upload it to Clearview AI and it'll return all the other places on the internet where that face has been seen. So it might reveal your name, your social media profiles, maybe even photos on the internet that you didn't know were out there because they're not associated with your name. When I've had a Clearview AI search run of me, it pulls up photos I know about, 
But it also pulled up photos of me at concerts where I'm in the background of someone else's photo at a public event once with a source of mine in a photo that I didn't realize was on the internet. Just all these photos that I didn't even know were out there because they're not tagged to my face. Wait, so is that legal and is it consistent with the terms of use of those platforms? That's a great question. (laughs) Is it legal? Um, So when I first wrote about Clearview AI, I did a big expose in the New York Times. And Facebook and LinkedIn and Venmo and these other companies said, hey, we didn't know about this. And these companies said, we didn't know about this. They sent letters to Clearview AI and they said, hey, you violated our terms of service. They sent cease and desist letters, a legal threat, saying, we're going to sue you unless you stop scraping us and delete the information that you've already collected from our sites. And don't do this. It's a breach of contract, violates a hacking law. But they never did anything else besides send these letters. As far as I know, Clearview AI did not back down. They've continued to collect this data. They say they collect 75 million new images every single day. And in the U.S., there is no federal or national law that really applies to what Clearview AI is doing. And that's different from outside the USM. There are other countries that have said, yes, Clearview AI is totally acting illegally. You can't collect personal information about our citizens without their consent. It violates our privacy laws. But here in the U.S., we haven't had that kind of reckoning. Tell me about some of the players of Clearview AI. Who are these people? So when I first discovered this startup, no one had heard about them. They were based in New York. I asked experts, have you heard about this company? And no one had. They really were an unknown entity. And I assumed that they had made some kind of technological breakthrough, that they were masterminds, geniuses who had been able to do something that governments and big tech companies hadn't. Turns out they're just a pretty ragtag crew of individuals. The main guy is a tech guy. He grew up in Australia, always loved computers. At 19 years old, dropped out of college, moved to San Francisco to chase the tech boom. But his history was making Facebook quizzes and iPhone games, and an app called Trump Hair. He wasn't doing anything astounding before he created Clearview AI. And that was really striking to me. And I found out, actually, that companies like Google and Facebook had developed this technology internally and decided it was too dangerous to release. But the building blocks were out there on the web. And basically, we got to a point where anyone with technical savvy could build this. It was just a matter of ethical arbitrage, being willing to do what others weren't willing to do. And there are other backers of Clearview AI, right? I mean, one of them, Charles C. Johnson, is an alt-right person, Holocaust denier. Yeah, so Huantan Tat, he lived in San Francisco for a while and kind of ran with the liberal crowd there. But then in 2015, he moved to New York and he would later tell me he was radicalized by the internet. So Huantan Tat falls in with this very conservative crowd. He is rooting for Trump, and he meets this guy, Charles Johnson, who is a pretty well-known conservative provocateur. Many people have called him an internet troll, and they decide to go to the RNC together in 2016. And this is when Trump is a candidate. Peter Thiel is speaking there. They actually meet with Peter Thiel. He later became the first investor in Clearview AI. If a comic book came up with a billionaire villain whose origin story began in Silicon Valley, you might see a drawing resembling Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk on the cover. But it's really that man you just heard, Peter Thiel, speaking at the RNC in 2016, 
who could be credited with inspiring the anti-democratic, hyper-capitalist, and unabashedly dangerous expansion of a now overmighty and very political tech industry. He gave them $200,000 before it was even called that, which is really interesting because Peter Thiel is also a big Facebook investor and was on their board for a long time. So you think that it would set off alarm bells when he heard that there was this company that was trying to scrape all the social media sites. So Charles Johnson said that kind of the idea for Clearview AI came up at the RNC, that they were thinking it would be really nice to be in an event like this and be able to point your phone at somebody and know who they are, whether they're friend or foe, just to know people as you're moving through these crowds, that it would be really helpful. And so they started just working on it after that. It's pretty extraordinary what this very small crew was able to build. Scary, but extraordinary. I have a question about how the app works specifically, but I don't think I want to really encourage much more about the specifics of the app. I think we should sort of transition to some other questions like, how do you think artificial intelligence changes the functionality and efficacy of facial recognition? So AI is what made facial recognition technology so powerful. This ability of computers just to ingest so much data and see patterns in it. It's what supercharged facial recognition technology. And it also is what makes it so easy to deploy facial recognition technology. And so it's very easy now to have it kind of running on cameras in real time. So we've seen this at Madison Square Garden, for example. They're not using Clearview AI. They're using a different facial recognition vendor. But as people enter, it's a huge venue in New York. Rangers play there. Knicks play there. Every big band wants to play there. People, as they walk through the door, have their faces scanned. And if you're on their list, you'll get turned away. And initially, Madison Square Garden installed facial recognition technology in 2018 to address security threats. But in the last year, they started using it to keep out lawyers, people who worked at firms that had sued Madison Square Garden. And I've actually seen this happen. I went there with a lawyer on the list. And, you know, thousands of people are streaming into MSG. And within a minute of being inside. We put our bags down on the security belt. By the time we picked them back up, a security guard walked up to us and asked her for ID and then said she had to leave because she worked for one of these firms. It didn't matter. She didn't work on a case against MSG. She was banned. And so you can just see how quickly this could be used for safety and security purposes, but also to monitor political opponents, suppress dissent, control critics. It is really a very powerful tool. All right. How about this? Let's say, theoretically, what you're saying is that someone could, say, take a picture of a woman walking out of an abortion clinic, right? Upload it to this app and get basically all of their information, their name, their Facebook profile, LinkedIn, employer info, whatever's out there already. Exactly. They couldn't use Clearview AI. Clearview AI is limited to police use, but there are other face search engines with smaller databases, but the same very powerful technology. And yeah, you could see a woman walking away from Planned Parenthood, take her photo, and potentially find other photos of her on the internet and find out who she is. If you upload a photo into Google's reverse image search, it'll find websites where that picture has appeared or provide visually similar images that have the same coloring and composition. The leading search engine in Russia, called Yandex, has reverse image search too, but it doesn't work the same way. It's not looking for visually similar images, it's looking for similar faces, the same face. 
the difference between these search engines is that Google hasn't switched on facial recognition and Yandex has. On Google, you can enter a name and look for a face, but on Yandex, you can enter a face and look for a name. And that distinction represents a potentially enormous shift in our offline lives, where we usually decide who we introduce ourselves to. You could be in a bar, you're talking to somebody, you never want to see them again. They snap your photo, they find out who you are, find your social media profiles, find out where you live. Even children, that was one of my concerns with these open sites. You could take a photo of a child on a playground and potentially find out who they are. This is one of the big benefits of Clearview AI. I've heard from investigators who work on child crime cases. They say, you know, we have these photos of abuse. We can use Clearview AI not just to identify the abuser, but sometimes to identify a child victim that we didn't know about. And how is all of this different from services like Ancestry, where we leave this biological data without consent, including in our relatives, which is, again, used by law enforcement? So I see a lot of parallels between what has happened with faces and what is happening with DNA. So. Man, this is like such a big topic. But one thing that a lot of civil libertarians are really worried about is that police are circumventing the Constitution because they're going to these private companies that have these big data collections. And they're able to get access to data that it would probably be unconstitutional if the police had gathered it themselves. And these genetic databases that are being created, again, through an open source community. People use a site like Ancestry or a site like 23andMe. They download their genetic profile and then they'll upload it onto the internet in a shared database because they're trying to find relatives. They're trying to meet across different services. And police saw that trend and then they started going through that database to try to identify criminal suspects. And so it is a similar thing. It's using data that was provided for one reason in another context. And again, it's hard to protect yourself. And genetics is even more complicated because even if you don't upload your data, if your first cousin does or a brother or a sister, you're part of the database. This trend, it's just the slippery slope. And there's these big constitutional questions about, should we be doing this? Who should have access to this data? What kind of protections are we entitled to? I don't think that most people were expecting when they started uploading photos of themselves to social media sites or when they did 23andMe to find out how Italian they were, that, you know, we gave this data and we didn't anticipate how it would ultimately be used. And that's what's so hard about privacy because the technology is becoming capable of new things all the time. And it's just, it is hard to forecast what is going to happen. So it makes it hard to decide what data to put out there about yourself. Okay, so law enforcement Are there other agencies using this in the United States right now? So Clearview AI just re-upped with the Department of Homeland Security in September. They're used by the FBI. The Air Force has given them funding to work on augmented reality glasses that soldiers could wear at military bases, for example, to identify people in real time around them. Facial recognition technology is widely used by police right now. They are mostly using it retroactively to solve crimes, as opposed to what we are seeing in other places, like Moscow has facial recognition technology running in real time on cameras so they can find missing people, find wanted criminals. China, you know, very far ahead, they're automatically giving people tickets for jaywalking using this kind of technology. 
That's why I wrote the book. It's why I want us to be thinking about it right now because it is spreading very quickly. And I think we need to think about what role we want it to play in society and how ubiquitous we want this technology to be. And I don't know about you, but for me, anytime I get one of those click accept to accept terms of services or terms of use, I never read what those terms are because I just assume they're not taking my image and using it nefariously. How do we educate people who are more reluctant or don't have the time or don't understand what these terms are that we are just carelessly clicking to accept? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these sites right now, they're scraping regardless of what the terms are or what you've said about the use of your image. One thing I tell people is just make this decision when you're posting. Do you get some kind of real benefit out of posting a photo publicly? And if you don't, it is very smart to be posting privately now because not just facial recognition companies, but all of these AI companies are now treating the internet as this kind of public commons for collecting all kinds of data. And so anything that's public on the internet now is really getting regularly scraped and used to train all kinds of AI systems. So I think posting privately is smart, but this is like the environmental crisis. There's only so much you can do as an individual. It is really a societal problem that we have to address at a higher level. And it's the lack of laws and regulations right now that are the problem that you are allowed to just put people into a database without their consent. Europe and other countries have treated this differently. They say you're not allowed to just put people into big databases. We just don't have a law like that in the U.S. at the national level. So there is no oversight. There are no government regulators, correct? Really haven't been at the national level. There are some state laws that are relevant. There's one really super strong law in Illinois called the Biometric Information Privacy Act, one of the rare laws that move faster than the technology was passed in 2008. And it says that you can't use people's face prints and other biometrics without their consent. So a company like Clearview AI isn't supposed to just come along and collect all of Illinoisans' faces and put it into a big database or it breaks this law. And they have gotten into a lot of trouble there. There are other states that have privacy laws, like California, Connecticut, Virginia, Colorado. And they're important laws, but they're basically laws that allow you to get out of the databases. So you can go to Clearview AI if you live in one of those states and say, hey, I want to see what you have on me and I want you to delete it. But it doesn't protect you from getting put in the database in the first place. How can all of this be used for political purposes, like political opponents? that sort of nefarious use of it? So Clearview AI in their early days, they weren't even called Clearview AI yet. They were called Smart Checker. And they were actually pitching their services to politicians. And they said that they could use their tools to gather information about voters, but also about political opponents, that they could do opposition research and essentially do a search of their face and see what comes up. Are there embarrassing photos? Do they have a secret OnlyFans account? Are there embarrassing photos of them at a party that are out on the internet that are not associated with their name? And I thought about this a lot in a Virginia race, a local Virginia race, where one of the candidates, a woman named Susanna Gibson, it was revealed that she had created online sex videos with her husband. And I don't think she realized that they had been archived on the internet, but some Republican operative found them, turned them over to the Washington Post. It became this huge news story. And I think that those could have very easily have been found in a face search. I find this all terrifying. And the idea that someone like 
Charles Johnson can, without my consent, profit off my likeness and use it in ways that are, you know, dangerous and, in my view, violate my constitutional rights, it makes my stomach hurt. It's just sickening. Is there a way to put the genie back in the bottle? Are there organizations working against this? Are they lobbying against this? What is happening? There are definitely groups that are strongly opposed facial recognition technology. One of them is called Fight for the Future. They want to see a ban on all facial recognition technology. They think it's just too dangerous. Madison Square Garden in New York has received major backlash for using facial recognition to ban people and kick them out of concerts. Now performers and venues are joining the fight against surveillance tech in the entertainment industry by pledging to keep live shows and events facial recognition free. Over 100 artists have signed the pledge, including Tom Morello, Zach De La Rocha, Deerhoof, Bedouin, Anti-Flag, and Yacht, as well as venues like House of Yes in Brooklyn and The Black Cat in Washington, D.C. There are a lot of other groups out there like that and fight for the future to try to get lawmakers to care. They actually went to the Capitol at one point and they were running around in hazmat suits with cameras on top of their head, trying to identify people in real time to say, hey, we can do this. Please pass a law to stop us from being able to do this. I honestly think it's unlikely we would ban facial recognition technology entirely just because it is such a useful tool for police to solve crimes. But I think that we can rein it in and have some regulations. And we've done this in the past. A lot of people are kind of nihilistic and they say, hey, the technology is out there. You just need to get used to it. We're going to live in a world where we are all famous, where everyone knows who you are the minute they see you, the minute you walk through the door, and you just have to get used to that, that the new luxury will be privacy, will be the ability to not be known. But I don't think that we need to accept that. And I was looking back at earlier times in history and actually at the same time that the CIA was trying to get facial recognition technology started, we were dealing with a different privacy invasion, a new technology that people were very scared of. It was called the electronic listening invasion. There are all these tiny bugs and wiretapping equipment and people felt like they couldn't have a private conversation. That anywhere, if you talked on the phone, if you were talking to somebody in a room, that there were just these bugs everywhere. People were listening all the time. And we passed laws to protect conversational privacy. And it's the reason why the surveillance cameras that are all around the United States are only recording our images and not our voices, not our conversations, because we felt like that was an important zone of privacy that we needed to protect. And I think we can do that again with our faces and our, our ability to be anonymous. Have you personally done anything to protect yourself from facial recognition? So I, um, I don't live in a state that allows me to get out of Clearview's database. I live in New York. We don't yet have one of those privacy laws. So one of the public face search engines that's called PimEyes, I search for myself. I have many photos on the internet. I think my kind of facial privacy is lost. I just have so many photos out there. But I search for my daughter, who at the time was five. And a photo of her came up in the search. So I went to PimEyes and I got that result removed. And I do, I think differently about how to share photos of my daughters because I don't want to create this huge digital trail for them that will be able to be mined by some company in the future. And so I try to only share photos of them privately. Or if I put them on my Instagram account, I do it as stories that are ephemeral, like only for friends and family, not on a public account. 
that's the main way that I protect myself. It's hard when you already have a lot of photos on the internet. And we all do. The book is called Your Face Belongs to Us, a secretive startup's quest to end privacy as we know it. Kashmir, just tell everyone why they should be aware of this and why they should read the book. I think it's important right now to be aware of this because it really is a wild west and anyone can search your face. And so it's good to be prepared for that and the choices that you make. I have heard from women who had OnlyFans accounts who thought, as long as my name isn't attached to this, I'm okay. And they're running into problems now. It's coming up in background searches that people are doing on them when they are doing a search for their face. It'll be tough to, for lack of a better word, track Facebook on this. They say they're dropping facial recognition, which has long been the bane of privacy advocates. But what does that really mean? I know. I thought for Facebook user Noel Bosenberg, social media and technology as a whole has long been a love-hate relationship. Um, surveillance and security cameras everywhere. So Facebook announcing it will shut down its facial recognition system is being met with something less than 100% trust. I think for people who have run-ins with law enforcement, knowing that maybe they did a face search to identify you as a suspect, it's very important to know that, to defend yourself. And I have written about a handful of people who have been wrongfully arrested for the crime of looking like someone else, because this technology is powerful, but it does make mistakes. I just think it's important to know about facial recognition technology to understand this larger trend of AI and how so many of these new companies are scraping everything on the internet and everything's going open source. And it really is going to be the radical actors like Clearview AI who decide how far to push the technology. You will have people that do the most extreme thing. And if we don't have laws and regulations in place, I don't think we're going to be happy with the future that we're living in. And finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is that we have regulated new technologies in the past and we have set rules and that we've done it before and we can do it again. We constrain technology all the time. Cars go 200 miles per hour, but we don't all drive 200 miles per hour because it's dangerous, because we would be fine, because that would be a horrible world. And so we do constrain technology and we can do it again. So that gives me hope. Well, Kashmir Hill, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Without your realizing it, images you've posted online could be feeding a powerful facial recognition algorithm, often used by law enforcement. It's over 3 billion photos with faces in the database, and it's all from open source internet. So any kind of website, CNN.com or mugshot websites, news sites, social media, uh, you name it. A company called Clearview AI has the largest known facial recognition database of images in the U.S., larger than the FBI's. It includes images scraped from social media sites like Facebook, YouTube, even Venmo. We really don't even know where to begin. The expectation of privacy has already been gutted by the Supreme Court. In part, this right was what underpinned Roe v. Wade. And we all know how that went. But when our private information, our very faces, become for-profit fodder for unregulated tech businesses to sell without our consent, and worse, 
to be sold to law enforcement, to be used against us without our consent? Where the hell is our government in preventing this? We need a government policy on technology and personal privacy that is far less reactive and far more proactive. We've seen how dangerous the use of personal information can be in the way of disinformation, in the way it has been propagated on social media directly aimed at the people most likely to believe it. We know that this is wrong, so where are the people in charge trying to make it right? We know Elon Musk isn't trustworthy, and yet hundreds of millions of us give him our private data. Where is the oversight? Private corporations driven by greed should never have the right to our private selves. We need a responsible federal government, should we ever get our hands on one of those, to fix this before it's too late. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.